everyone, and welcome to Salem Happenings, a show digging into the issues you're all talking about around the city. Today, we're joined by former city art planner Deborah Greel, Salem Gazette reporter Will Dowd, Salem State University professor Rebecca Haynes, and our fifth regular panelist, Gwendolyn Rosemond, is off today. I'm Dustin Luca with the Salem News. The guy off screen is SATV producer Alan Hanscom. And to kick things off, we actually have a special guest for our first segment, Shell Crowns, Vice President of Institutional Advancement from Salem State University. Back in February, Salem State actually had some really astounding news that we didn't really have a chance to jump into on the last go around. It had received a staggering $6 million gift, the biggest infusion to hit any of the state colleges in their history. Out of that, the university now has the Viking Completion Grant Endowment, which puts interest from this endowment into lowering the cost of completing college for financially struggling seniors within more hopeful reach. So we're going to so we're going to kind of kick things off today with uh, Rebecca, who is from Salem State, and Cheryl. So Rebecca, take it away. Great. Thank you, Dustin. Um, and Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, as a faculty member who works closely with students, I was delighted when the news reached the community about this um, this donation. You know, the Schiller's philanthropy seems just what we needed for our students in this moment. Um, working so closely with students, I see how they and their families do have so many different obstacles to overcome and they work so hard that a gift like this seems like a really meaningful and transformative way to just get them past those final hurdles that so many face as they're approaching graduation. Um, so in that spirit, I was wondering if you could share with us today a little bit more about the impact that you and your team anticipate this gift having on Salem State students. Absolutely. Um, first, just a little bit of history because I think uh, it's helpful to understand that $6 million gifts don't just fall out of the sky. They take um, a multitude of moving pieces and years and years of um, relationship building um, and education about what the institution is doing um, and a lot of buy-in in that process between um, campus and um, philanthropists. So that's you know the work that we do in institutional advancement and in the Salem State University Foundation. Um, and we seek to solely support Salem State and its mission, um, you know, in the foundation and doing that work. Um, in particular, the Schillers have been uh, involved with the university. Kim, going back to um, you know her year of graduation in 1983 making her first gift a dollar. Um, so she didn't start by making $6 million gifts. I think it was really, it's really a good point to make that uh, it started with a dollar contribution. And over time, as she and her husband, Philip, were able to do more, they did more. Um, certainly, um, we've been in conversations with the Schiller for a number of years about um, support of the university, um, and they've been truly generous. Um, as the pandemic hit, uh, and we were talking about how that impacted Salem State, in particular our students uh, and the population we served, it was clear to the Schillers that they wanted to do something that was going to help them um, work through this and to really obtain um, ultimately their goal of reaching uh, graduation. Um, Kim actually spent some time in our navigation center learning a little bit about the process and some of the obstacles that our students were facing from the staff on the front lines, um, from those people saying, how can we help you? Um, so hearing the stories 
directly from those staff members who, you know, on a day to day are helping students to navigate the financial challenges they might be facing to get through college. Um, and I think she was struck by um, how little, uh, seemingly little, uh, they needed to get that hurdle accomplished, whether it be $500 or 3000 And it's really a range uh, depending on the student and the needs and what they've exhausted from a financial perspective um, and felt like it was critical at this moment, um, you know, in the pandemic to help these students. So as we dig, dug into the data, we realized um, in particular in the senior year, there were, you know, 60-ish students who are high-performing students that were at risk of dropping out. So what does that mean for Salem State students? That means they've already invested three years uh, into their education. They've got, most likely for our students in particular, they've got a series of loans. Um, some could even be high-interest loans because they've exhausted all possible financial aid. Their parents can't afford to send them, so they're on their own. So, you know, they they get to that last point before graduation and then have to stop out. That puts them, I think, at a worse, um, in a worse situation than when they started with the hopes of um, being able to further themselves uh, in their lives as a result of a Salem State education. Uh, and we know um, a college education is going to bring <clears throat> better quality to their lives, their communities, they go back to um and uh, make them healthier live longer uh more prosperous lives um so seemingly 500 to 3000 you know was something that i think the shillers felt like they could be helpful in and solving for students in the senior year so that gift will in fact uh help 50 to 75 students with microloans or not microloans micro grants they won't have to pay them back every single year in perpetuity. That gift will have a lasting legacy um, beyond our lives um, because it does establish an endowment. Um, the good news is with this particular gift, the donors have wanted to make an impact immediately. So there is a blending of um, spendable dollars that can be used immediately as the endowment um, matures. Um, for the required three years of investment to be able to perform and produce ongoing revenue that kind of retains its long-term um, health and, and impact on the institution and its students it serves. So um, for, for both you know, our students, uh, the beneficiaries of this gift and for the donors, I think it was just a real um, match uh, um, a match of um, interests, uh, and Kim, being a first-generation college student herself, um, saw her peers in them. Uh, you know, they could have mm. been who she went to school with. She's often said that, um, and I think the idea that they wouldn't make it to the finish line um, bothered her, bothered her a lot. And I'll, I'll tell you um, the other thing that uh, you know we helped. Um, bring to light was the difference in cost of an education now versus when she was here in 83. Um, and for those that may not know, it has outpaced um, inflation. Um, and the families that we serve um, are still, I would say, the same income bracket, but their incomes have gone down. Because if you look at um, income data over the last um, 25 years, um, for the you know the bottom quartile for which our students come from, 
um, their family salaries have stayed flat, which really means they've gone down. Uh, at the same time, the cost of education's rise uh, at a faster pace. Um, so for the students we serve, this particular gift um, makes it more manageable and possible. And we hope honestly that this is a magnet for other people to see that um, philanthropic dollars can be really maximized to the benefit of educating um, a stronger North Shore community um, because you know our students come from the North Shore. Right, and it's amazing how many families and students this really will make a difference to. Um, and I was also curious about how the, the $1 million portion of that gift that will be used in other manners might be spent. What, what are some of the targets for, for that funding? Yes, so um, those are discretionary dollars. Um, uh, unrestricted support is directed by the foundation. Last year, for example, we used discretionary dollars to direct to the emergency fund um, for which the campus spends faster than we can fill from a fundraising perspective. These are students who may not have an ability to pay for Wi-Fi and they were relying on in-person classes. This mm -hmm. might include students that don't have computers or didn't have computers and they were doing classes from their phones. So um, there were emergency dollars for that. Um, we had uh, you know, a young woman who said she couldn't pay her rent. I mean, there were a number of issues that financial aid can address. Um, and so um, a way in which we deployed unrestricted dollars last year was for the emergency fund. That was just one example. Um, but uh, so that's piece of it. And the other piece is um, the donor has been very involved with the Gasset Fitness Center. It was named for her parents. Um, and she's provided uh, annual support over the next five years for that program. Um, in particular, uh, wellness U programs that impact both employees and students. Um, so some of the pro virtual programs that our employees have been able to participate in, uh, her family has um, supported and they've um, continued to put more resources into that, as well as um, there's an emergent scholars program so out of the first year experience office um, that's uh, developed. Uh, they did a pilot last year and they're looking to have more cohorts within that emergency emerging scholars program and so they expand they are going to expand it with the dollars they're getting from uh, which are directed to the center for academic excellence so this gift has far-reaching impact um, and we hope to be reporting out quite honestly on um, the great success uh, as we see for the first time students receiving these funds um, and our campus um, getting these funds for the first time um this spring so um there'll be much more to come on the impact of this gift uh as as we go on out in the out years that's really great thank you so much yeah no problem uh, one quick question to you first of all i knew a young man about six years ago who did drop out in his third year for this very same reason i know and to hear about this program and he, he uh he got that far you know and um i know i know i know i should look him up and tell him that but um do you do you anticipate other donors adding to this uh six million dollar gift as well um, yeah to impact more students I was just going to say the need is far greater than the donor was able uh, to contribute for this particular um, 
priority, the Viking completion grant. So actually, um, I think very humbly decided not to put their names on it so that other donors could see themselves to giving and support mm -hmm. and expanding what they've done. Um, and she knows people can't do six million, but uh, I think she's really um, hoping that other people will step up in the ways that they can uh, and be inspired by what they've done. Yeah, and I mean, it's one of the things that I think is really important to kind of point out with this is that we're talking about a single grant program, but at the same time, the impact of that is with every single grant that's cut, every single check that goes out. Like there's somebody, there's a friend of mine who is going to Salem State right now. He's entering his senior year and he's kind of like, I, I need to find a way to have this many credits. And he's kind of, he's commiserating on the idea that he might have to add another semester. And so it, so it isn't necessarily just, you know, finishing a degree within four years. It's also being able to finish a program somewhere else, something like that. Sometimes the education goes outside of four years and that creates, that causes a lot of students maybe to put a lot more pressure than their schedule would normally be able to provide. Yeah, and you make a really, really good point, Dustin. And I don't think I've touched on that. And that is the number of hours we're seeing our students work is becoming troublesome. Honestly, you know, don't we all want equity in education? Don't we want every student to be able to take the most out of their education? I feel like at Salem State, we, in some ways, you know, we laud our students because they work so hard. They've got multiple jobs, family um, commitments that, and community commitments that they're balancing. Um, but I think it does take away from their ability to focus truly on their education in ways that I see others, and I've been at other schools uh, within Boston, we won't name them, many private schools. Um, and quite honestly, they, they, they have the luxury of just learning. Mm -hmm. uh, and I want more of that for our students. I think, you know, when I see students carrying three jobs, um, that to me is concerning uh, because it's, it's, it's they're worrying about the dollar in their pocket instead of A, that they're striving to get. Um, and, you know, it shouldn't be, they shouldn't have to choose. They shouldn't have to choose. And then Cheryl, I just want to ask you, how creative is this sort of grant assistance program? I mean, I don't think I've ever heard of something like this where you would cut a check for someone to help them get across the finish line. It's usually some scholarship or some sort of grant that you get at the beginning that helps you for certain things. I, I wonder how, you know, imaginative you guys were in setting up this program. Well, there are completion grants in higher education. If you were to Google it, you would see that there are others. So I'm not going to say that this is brand new, but I will say mm -hmm. when this gave, came through, I got a lot of emails from my peers at the other state university system saying, can you tell me a little bit about that and what you did? This was the first time we did it at Salem State as well. So it, it was a brand, this is a brand new granting program. It took a lot of work between um, the financial aid office and the advancement team in developing, co-developing this because we wanted to get it right. We did, there was, you know, there's so much opportunity for impact. Um, and this is just one way you can do that. Um, but we wanted to make sure that the donor had a positive experience, that, students have a positive experience and that it was making a difference and that it helps students stay in college and that was really the goal um that was really the goal thank you yeah. yep. before we move on to our next topic does anybody want to get anything else in? 
Thank you. That's a wonderful update. Yeah. Yeah, no. It was a great update. Yeah, I, I didn't realize the nuances of it, and uh, you really helped make it con concrete for me. So I'm glad that you came on our show. Yeah, anytime. Uh, as Rebecca knows, I'm happy to you know to hop on and talk to you all. So thank you for including me. Thank you for inviting me and giving me this platform to talk about this wonderful gift. No problem. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. I mean, obviously, this is huge news for Salem State and anyone who sets foot on campus for the next several years. So thank you for coming on. Providing In perpetuity. Know. Yes. Yeah. Forever. True. Yeah. Forever. And stock market's doing well. So let's take it. It is. It is. It is. <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you. you, Cheryl. All right. We'll see you all. Take care. And uh, I hope you have a good second half of your. <laughs> all right. Thank, take you. Care. thank you. Bye. Bye. Stay healthy. So another developing story just down the road from Salem State is the South River Revitalization Project, a new project from the North Shore CDC that's pitching two buildings on Lafayette Street and Peabody Street. The revitalization on this, of course, comes with the growth of the North Shore Community Health and an expanded health clinic on the corner of Derby Street to sharply increase health care access to downtown and the Point neighborhood. Of course, the project has also drawn opposition with several floors of senior housing proposed on top of the current two floors. This is all going to be getting a lengthy review and is still a ways from being presented in the first place. So if the size of the project does need to change, I'm sure the process will get there. That all said, outside the dispute over the scale of the main building, the project is otherwise a game changer. But let's just dial this back for a second. Why is a project of this caliber needed in Salem and what community needs are driving it? Well, I'm going to, um, I'm just going to mention, I am on the board of the North Shore Community Development Coalition, um, which is an enormously impressive uh, organization in not just affordable housing, but all the programs that they do. Um, I think it's going to be a game changer because I believe that this building is going to be our connection between the downtown and the Point neighborhood. Um, and in terms of looking at you've got derby loft across the street across the street from the other side you have a building of what's going to be of similar size so i think you're going to look at sort of you know the landscape sort of going to be filled in as it were the developers are really looking uh they're taking a new look at this are they going to be separating doing you know 25 units in the main building and maybe 25 units on peabody street you're also going to be housing, um, for, first of all, the stability of the North Shore Medical, I mean, the North Shore uh, Health Community Center, the stability. They're in three different buildings right now. Um, they're going to be able to also offer um, more of an urgent care. I don't know if anybody's used urgent cares, but I know that it keeps you out of the, uh, the emergency room. I know I have used them myself. I would probably plan on using this one. Um, and it also gives uh, about 50 units of affordable housing for seniors. It's something we talk about all the time is how much we need affordable housing, especially for our seniors. They'll be right downtown, which be able to use the facilities uh, there. They probably won't put much emphasis on parking because of looking at um, the seniors that will be in there in terms of looking at affordability. Uh, so I think that there's, there's just so many, so many really great things. And then the other thing that I love is that they will be making room for hopefully housing some nonprofits for offices for nonprofits that could gather together and work together. Yeah, no, I just, um, you know, uh, we've, we've had multiple attempts at trying to bridge, you know, the point neighborhood with the downtown area. And I think that this would be a, a great way of doing that. I just, do you got? Does anyone know any like what this? Can someone talk more about like the state of the health center? Like you said that it was in three different buildings. Like I, 
like uh i just more on like why why this project's needed i'm not really sure you know but um just yeah i don't yeah. What, does anyone know? It's, it's not or, big enough. Um, they, they, it's not big enough right now. They see about 7,000 patients from all over the North Shore, um, many from the Point neighborhood. So it's just not big enough. And you're also looking at a landlord situation with the Shetland property. So if they move into this building, it's not as though they'll, they'll own the building, but they will be a, a, a consistent tenant without the fear of moving. So if you have an admin in one building and you've got primary care in another building and you've got behavioral health and dental in another building, you can see how this would work. For instance, um, I, I go to uh, my doctor, but downstairs I can, I can have a mammogram. I can get my lab work done. It's a one-stop shop and that's what this is going to be. You know, they'll be able to expand some of their services as well. And again, with urgent care, um, and again, with your seniors right in your, you know, in, in the same building. So this is why it's, it's really, really needed. Um, I will tell you, I have seen, I, I don't know yet, like the, the design that's going to be presented in front of the boards, but I love the idea that they're, they're maintaining the facade of that sort of curvature building, the Goldberg building. So, um, and one of the things about the North Shore CDC is when they build, they work with really, really tremendous architects um, that are very sensitive to um, passive houses, low carbon footprint, beauty. Um, speaking of beauty, they're gonna be adding more public art down down at the point and utilizing this, some of these buildings. So, so I just see it as, is just just a win-win for the city, for the residents, um, for all of us. Uh, actually, uh, you know, we, we at the Salem Gazette, we wrote one story about this initially, just like you know the big kind of debut of it and whatnot. Have you got any? The three of you heard of any of the opposition to this yet? What are some of their arguments about it? Is it like the re regular just traffic? It's too big. I don't like the architecture kind of stuff. Like, I know we've had some discussion within our little Facebook chat, but. I don't, yeah, do you guys? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard a little bit of it. I know that there's a petition that's going around downtown um, to kind of talk about, you know, the size of the building and things like that. Because, I mean, it is it is taking a building that's going from two stories to six stories, which is kind of akin to the building across the street, as Devin mentioned. So you can, you can kind of understand where that criticism comes from. And I think that, you know, the, the public hearing process on this is going to really kind of carve a lot of that out. Because one thing that we've seen over and over again from North Shore CDC is that they can come forward with a proposal and then they build a program around it. And then at that point, you know, you can tweak the aspects of the building in terms of the height and things like that. But it's still ultimately at the end of the day going to be about what's going to be going into the building and everybody can get behind that message and i mean we're all talking about the one that's at the corner of lafayette and derby but there's going to be one on peabody street as well that's going to be mm -hmm. um adding studio apartments for artists who are painting in the point and this is you know north shore cdc providing free housing to these artists while they're doing work for the organization and then also for americorps when they're working with youth build and also mm -hmm. doing more work for the organization north shore cdc you know as much as they have been creating affordable housing and things like that they're also creating housing that supports their own programs and kind of helps support the needs of the community builds up the pride of the community you know and they're also talking about retrofitting the um the little playground that's right next to that yeah. street where, what right now it's a parking lot so there's just all these different little ancillary things that are kind of feeding into this project 
that you know the opposition talks about the size of the building the main building and things like that and what kind of i know that there's also concern about you know ambulances screaming in and out at all hours of the night because some not people be hear this yeah i mean yeah. some people there, hear this they kind of they're picture not, north yeah. shore medical center but they're i not. you know yeah, I, I, I have to just talk about that right away. And then the other thing they're talking about is 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 parking. First of all, it, it's not determined exactly the size of the buildings right now. As I said, the developers are taking a fresh look at this, the designers. So, and I think by the end of the month or the beginning of June, we're going to probably see more. Um, there's not going to be ambulances. Um, Parking was a big one, but that's sort of really rich coming from Derby Lofts, which really was built without parking. Um, you know, you had to go down to the South Harbor Garage. So so that is really interesting to me that they're saying that. And, and also, as I mentioned, the seniors themselves, if you're looking at an, an area median income of 30%, which is probably what half of the seniors will be paying, again, the affordability of a car, of insurance, and also now we have the Salem Skipper, or you can walk across the street to downtown and get some of the things that you need, or go to Steve's Market. So, so that I think I think you know they're going to be talking about all those different issues. And I think once people hear them all, I think they're going to have an understanding of size of the building, what's in the building, the need for for what this is, and also no ambulances and looking at what the parking issue is. And yeah, no, I'm just saying. Like one of the things too, as I said. You can't have it both ways. We keep talking about we need and want senior housing and we want affordable housing. And 50, 50 units for affordable housing for seniors is, is just huge. And, um, you know, just I, I, as I said, I think when more and more people hear about this, I think they're really going to get behind this really important project. Very creative, yeah. Very creative. And also the people who are going to say about the ambulance thing, it made me think of how the fire department has their building their headquarters right there so you know i yeah it's just yeah yep. there there's yeah there's fire the fire department is literally right there right so <laughs> up the corner down thing it's like yeah i've also heard that the person who the designer who might be working with redoing pbd park worked on the new york high line so you know there's going to be some really some exciting things um coming down for them so yeah. i'm really i'm really excited about this project i really am i can't wait to for the public to know more and more about it yeah. it, it sounds yeah. like it's really going to address a significant need so i'm eager to learn more yeah, yeah. And it's obviously going to be some time before that project starts construction. There are other things in the city that have been moving quicker, though, and two have surged through the public safety department right across the street, practically. As we're taping this episode, the city has announced the name of its next police chief, and an announcement on the fire chief is not expected to be that far behind it. Uh, but so far, all the attention has been on the police chief search, in part because of the field of candidates that were behind it. And that issue ties into another that this community picked up on in a recruitment video that the department released recently. So. So first, pull back a little bit. Let's talk about the new police chief, Lucas Miller, 30-year vet of the NYPD. Today, he's a detective lieutenant down there. And this was the final appointment out of an applicant field of 10 white men after the search netted no applicants from women or people of color. So who wants to kick this one off? Um, I, I think has everyone, I don't, I don't know if anyone home has, has seen the video that was promoted. I don't know if it was put up by the state or just the city, but um I was very disconcerted to see that it highlighted basically white men um, and uh, 
And the only woman that was in this video, she may have been a police officer, but she was not in uniform and she was helping an elderly woman. Nothing wrong with that, except it just says, okay, women caretaker. And then um, the only other women in there were uh, wives pinning their husbands, uh, you know, to become police officers, which is also very lovely. But no one of color. And my theory is if you can see it, you can be it. Right. And, and, you know, one thought that I have is um, I think at this moment, communities are calling to see more members of police forces reflect the communities they're serving. Um, and, you know, while, while certainly um, Salem does have many white people living in it, um, it is more diverse than other communities. And there's something meaningful about, uh, you know, when when communities act with deep intentionality and really prioritize um, hiring in ways that really would privilege diversifying the police force, finding leadership that is maybe, you know, less of the typical type of person who might be found in that role um, in other institutions. Um, it's really meaningful, but, you know, I don't know what the underlying barriers to that were. Um, so I'm not sure if, if either of our journalists have more insight into, you know, what might have um, made it difficult for the city to um, make a hire along those lines. But I, I do know there's lots of literature out there about how organizations tend to be self-replicating unless there is a real intentionality in saying, no, we want to diversify who works here and hire um, in a different way than they might otherwise. Dustin, I'm not sure, um, you know, uh, how much did civil service play into this? Well, so, and one of the things, because I know civil service was a factor, and I mean, the last time they had a police chief search of any kind, it turned into this huge argument about, you know, hiring from within or not from within, and that was one of the storylines with this one as well. They had four finalists, and two of them were not from Salem. So, actually, none of them were from Salem, I'm sorry. Yeah, we're, but two of them, you know, were kind of local, um, but not you know, with not within Salem itself. And there was a lot of talk about that because Paul Tucker had come up through the ranks. Mary Butler had come up through the ranks. Bob mm -hmm. St. Pierre had come up through the ranks. So there was this concern about that. But while this has been all playing out, there's also been an issue at the state level because Salem's police chief search played out if I remember, is something in the area of about 80 different police chief searches going on across the entire state right now? Yes. Because there's only 350 communities in the state of Massachusetts, and the fact that a quarter of them were looking for police chiefs at exactly the same time. One of the things that the mayor was attributing that to was the fact that a lot of police are um, kind of hesitant about applying for higher roles as, you know, all this course about civil rights and, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and things like that, you know, as that's been playing out, a lot of them are kind of uncertain about leading a department because they don't know what kind of a department they're going to be leading in a couple of years. So those are kind of the explanations that we've been hearing ever since the first people were saying, hey, why is there only 10 finalists and, you know, they're all white guys, you know, that that's kind of what we've been hearing over and over again. But I mean, it's still kind of a, it's a bad look for a city that has, you know, I think the, the white population in Salem is 71 percent as of the last census, not the most recent one, but going back a few years before that. So. I do think, though, that we do we, we do have to say that we do have some diversity in our police department. You know, they have a number, I think at least uh, recently, I think there's been um, three or four young men from the Point neighborhood who have joined the police force, which has been really terrific. 
Um, so, and at one time we had, you know, well, we still have a female mayor and we had a female chief of police and we had a female um, superintendent. So some leadership was there. But I think, I think from what I'm reading, the New York Times and the Washington Post, that there are a lot, just like what you said, Dustin, there are a lot of, of, of police that are questioning uh, in terms of thinking about um, their careers, you know, in departments and, uh, you know, and I think that that may be one of the reasons. Um, and it may, may be the same thing for higher ed, you know, there's there's so much competition in higher ed as well. So we'll, we're going to be seeing that. So uh, has anyone had a chance to meet him? I mean, I know I haven't. I think with COVID, it might be harder to, you know, have a public uh, kind of reception. That would be lovely. So I'm, I'm looking forward to well, that. He's not, he's not, it, it's not like Massachusetts is foreign to him. Um, from what I understand, he was uh, the former, he was like a former wealthy feet. Yeah, wealthy police officer um, when he started his career in 1991. So it's not like this, like the, it's going to be new, a new area for him, I guess. He's kind of familiar with Massachusetts. And he is coming in dealing with issues of, you know, there have been some, you know, gun violence in the point. I understand that the, that, that the victims knew each other, um, but he will be coming in to be dealing with that those issues because I think there's a lot of talk and fear, um, you know, in the city. Like, what's going on? What's going on? So, so he, I, I think that he'll he'll have that right under his belt immediately. Yeah. Well, I really wish him all the best, and I hope that it um, it proves to be a good fit and. Um, you know, it's it's a big moment for the city to have a transition in leadership in that area. Right. And not just that, but also times with the transition in leadership over at the fire department. You, you mean right. there's only two public safety departments in the city of Salem, and they're both getting new leaders at exactly the same time. So I just hope he's accessible because I know Mary Butler was always very accessible, as was Paul Tucker, as was Bob St. Pierre. They were they were they were present in the in the community. I, I'm hoping this gentleman would be as well. But they were very very accessible. You know, you yeah. you, you could stop them on the street, ask them a question, chat. So um, I'm hoping the same from from. The you know, just just to give you a little insider, and I'm sure okay. Dustin can second this. But anytime I call Tucker, he answers the phone like right away. Like he's like he he oh, will legitly like answer right away it's like it's very very uh transparent i guess we're just like yeah. and also remember you know tucker has a son on, on the police uh, force as as just as a saint pierre um so and i wonder if that's just a police thing though because i also whenever i call conrad prasniewski he's like hey kiddo how you doing and it's like automatic you know yeah they do they don't wait at all yeah, that's a good thing. Having access to you, you know, people in your community is a really good. You thing. know, Lori Earl looks kind of like that too. The state rep over in Marblehead and Swampscott, she's the same way. She's very, she'll get back to you right away. But yeah. so, yeah, I don't know why I'm saying that, but yeah. I think Salem is just really fortunate to have so many public officials yeah. who are accessible. I mean, you know, we've got the mayor and all of the city council members, or most of them, are on Facebook and will interact with anybody who posts. It's it's really remarkable. I'm not sure if people recognize how special and unusual that is. So hopefully I that'll set the tone. Maybe that'll I set the tone for these new leaders and they'll say this is a community where that is valued as part of the culture. Yeah. And almost expected. And I'm glad you said that too, because I don't think I've ever reached out to the mayor that I've had to wait uh, a day. Yeah, you know? she's actually <laughs> <It's> amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they sleep. <laughs> <laughs> 
or if they do, they don't tell us when. Right, uh, so, exactly. So we're going to start winding down the episode at this point. But before we do, Deb, how are your windows? Oh, so these sweet little boys, these are my neighbors. And uh, you're going to see Nathan right there with the bear. And I think we, everybody remembered at the beginning of COVID when the kids were going on a bear hunt just to get them outside and people were putting bears in their windows. Well, these two young guys, um, there weren't any bears on our street. So they're, they, they live with their grandmother and grandfather and their mom. And <laughs> I'm just, just laughing because I remember taking this picture of them. And um, their grandmother is, is a fifth grade teacher. And she said, come on, boys, you know, let's do something for the neighborhood. So they started off with bears. And then they did, uh, yeah, there's <laughs> funny. That's the latest. Um, so each season, they make something for all of us to put in our windows. And they also come with it. I hope people can see. They also have a little letter that goes with it and, and just awesome. talking about the neighborhood and the spring and how great it is to be together. And they've done for Valentine's Day, they did some hearts. And uh, in the snowy weather, we have these. And so it's two really wonderful things. It connects the neighborhood. But it also is, is wonderful for them to be able to have these sort of crafts that they're doing and they've gotten to know people. And it's so sweet when they come and knock on the door, you know, you open it up and there they are. And it's like, I, it, it's just, it's been one of the most heartwarming things in our neighborhood to have these two little boys, you know, um, sort of, and, and, and just keep us all together. And you should see them if they're outside, people walk by and they all know them. And it's just been a joy. I don't think that could be any sweeter. That is just darling. And is one of those stories of how, despite the pandemic being so hard on people in so many ways, there are these moments of joy interspersed where people have found ways to come together um, that hopefully some of these new methods of you know community building will perpetuate in the after time, which I hope is coming soon. <laughs> Yeah, I do too. Somehow I don't think that they're going to stop. I think we're getting used to that. Yeah. We have, you know, we have like some older people like right here and we have some, we have some people who grew up in their homes, you know, and they're elderly. And so it's, just been really it's great because it's like it could become a point of conversation for people like, you know, to, to talk about things and then that can expand onto other things. So I think that's really awesome. I'd save those pieces of artwork. And frame yeah. <laughs> I, I clearly have. <laughs> too, just the idea that COVID has taught us all how to do so many different things so differently. I mean, even just, you know, recording a TV show, we're all doing it on Zoom right now, you know. But one of the beautiful things about all this is that COVID's also taught us different ways to love. Yeah. This is one of the ways. Yeah, that's true. It's great. So that'll do it for this episode for Deb, Gwen, Rebecca, Will, and Alan. Thank you very, very much for joining us today. And stay safe, eat and shop local, get vaccinated if you haven't yet, and definitely take the day off after the second shot. And be <laughs> sure to join us next time if things are happening in Salem. See you, everybody. Bye.